0: Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Brock Wagner and Aaron Inkrott from St. Arnold Brewing Company coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She is an expert on food, wine, and good times. We follow her on Instagram at Swanky Maven, Felice Sloan. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
1: Hey, 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 hey! I am doing well. How are you, E?
0: I'm doing just fine. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Pappas Restaurants announces the return of Little Pappas Seafood, their restaurant at the corner of Shepherd and West Alabama that closed last year. It is coming with upgrades like a new bar top and an oyster bar. And in fact, it will have a slightly new name, Little Pappas Seafood House Oyster Bar, to emphasize its oyster selection. Felice, I I have a couple of thoughts on this, but let me throw it to you. What do you think about the return of Little Pappas? Is this a a restaurant that you have enjoyed in the past? And are you excited for its return?
1: Well, I'm excited for the return because so many people loved it. I never went. I never went. I have to admit, I never went. And just, just because, like, getting over there, I never was in that area that much. I am over in that area all the time now. So I'm very excited. And the reason I'm excited is because I'm in the area all the time. I just said that. But they've added oysters. So, and you know how me and oysters have a love thing going on. So I will definitely um, make an effort to get over there. And I think I'll get over there um, for sure now. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah.
0: Well, I will say they've always had... Some selection of raw oysters, but maybe only two or three kinds. And they had this marquee. And every now and then you'd be driving down Shepherd and you'd see like, you know, blue points, eight bucks a dozen or something like that. And it Mm -hmm. would be like, oh man, you know, start texting people (laughs) like, Papa says, Papa says, not just, not just Gulf oysters, but like some fancy pants East Coast oyster on special. It's like, are we going tonight? Are we going tomorrow? Like, we got to eat these before yeah. they run out. And and then you would go, and every table would have just giant trays of oysters, people chowing down on them. And you'd order the oysters, and the, the waiters would just sort of like they're they're very professional. So, but they would just be like, it's going to be a little bit. Like they're 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 shucking them as fast as they can. It's like no problem. Like I now, see, wait. I would
1: have made it to that. I would have made it to that. And it seems like you did. And I don't ever remember getting that text message that you laid out. Oh, because, you know, I'm a East Coast oyster girl. So I'm listening to you, but I'm a little bitter right now. But go ahead. Continue. Go ahead. Tough, go
0: ahead. But tough, tough, but fair. <laughs> you know, and, and then the other thing I like about it is it's, it's, it, as the name says, it's little, it's small, yeah. it's intimate, it's, you know, it can never get that crowded because it just doesn't have that much room. And so compared to, you know, some of the other options nearby, right? Like state of grace is a little more upscale, a little more expensive, it, you know, great oyster program. But, you know, sometimes I just want like fried shrimp and gumbo, you know, I want to I wanna yeah. knock down a dozen oysters and then have fried shrimp and gumbo and can't do that at state of grace. So it's like, well, I can go to good company, you know, but that, that tends to get super crowded. It's a little bigger restaurant, you right. know, Acme Oyster. We had our experience there. I think kind of neff said, you know, wasn't wasn't everything that I kind of hoped it would be. Right. So it it fits kind of in an interesting niche. And so just for that, I'm excited that it's coming back. I have fond memories of eating there with friends. You know, like I said, it's, you know, it's a dozen oysters, cup of gumbo, and then a fried shrimp platter for me. And that's that's a very satisfying, not inexpensive meal, but like.
1: Not doesn't but,
0: break the bank either, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but it's a good, like, literally everything you just named, right? Like, I like small and intimate. I like a small, intimate, quick and dirty. That's what I call it. Small, <laughs> intimate, you just, and you just listed it. That's a quick, dirty, dozen oysters, Um, give me some shrimp, some gumbo, or something, and call it a day, and I'm happy. Yeah. Right.
0: And then the other big upgrade is that Robert Smith, who's their corporate wine director, is stocking the, the wine list with, well, I, I according to their uh, their publicist, cool wines that he wants to drink when he's not working. So mm. I like the sound of that. European whites, lots of sparkling wines, and then some more acidic, lighter reds, you know, Pinot Noir and that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm into all of that because, you know, I'm not like a huge wine guy, but I do like... You know, bubbles or a Vermentino or something like that with oysters. The minerality plays really well with it. So, you know, give me all of those things, and 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 we don't have to wait. You know, I we don't have to wait too long for this. They said they're going to start hiring in January, and then once they have everybody hired and trained, it'll open. So maybe into January, maybe early February. But but we're you know a month away or six weeks away.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it won't be long. I like it. I like it.
0: All right. Let us move on to topic number two. Big news for hot chicken fans. Hattie B's, a restaurant from Nashville, has confirmed that they are going to open at the intersection of 18th Street and North Shepherd Drive in the Heights. Uh, this, is, this has been rumored for a while. You know, Hattie B's is uh, expanded from Nashville. They're in Montgomery, Alabama. They're in Atlanta. They've got a, a location in a Vegas food hall. So, you know, they announced a, a Dallas location. So we we knew that this was coming, but now there's an address, ground up building. They're working with Michael Shu from, you know, they've got an office in Austin, and Austin, an office in Houston. They've done a, a million projects. You know, they work with Uchi, they're doing Laura right now. They 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 got a lot, they got a lot on their plate. Um, and it's a big restaurant, 175 seats. So they're thinking that a lot of people are going to want Hattie B's Nashville Hot Chicken. Now, Felice, I know you travel quite a bit. Have you encountered Hattie B's in your travels?
1: I have. And, you know, when I used to go um, that area all the time, I would go to Hattie B's. Um, I would actually go to all the um, hot chicken places in Memphis, just um, in Nashville and, there just so I could have an opinion, you know, that, and that was kind of, I started doing that before hot chicken kind of got here, right? People were dabbling in it. Then I continued to go. And Hattie B's was always at the top of my list. Um, just because I could go to, uh, I could go there and it was very consistent. Um, it was very consistent. And even the, not so hot. I never did mayo, right? I never did the, the baby. I call it the baby chicken. I never did the baby chicken, but um, their hot was hot, but it still gave me something different. The extremely hot was out of this world. And I will say out of all the hot chicken places here, um, I think it has its own lane. You know, there's people that eat hot chicken here and they love hot chicken um, and you know there's places that they like I think Hattie B's they're like one of the originals right like them and princess like they're the original who um and ours just it's hot but it just has a different even if we're doing it we do our take on it I don't I don't think it compares nowhere here it compares uh, a restaurant of 175 though that's kind of uh I, I you know, that is, that, that, that is them counting on <laughs>
0: okay. that is well, right? It include, inside <laughs> and outside, that they're counting on a lot of people are going to want this hot chicken. That this, this, this trend, this wave of hot chicken that's sweeping the city isn't going anywhere. Uh,
1: but that's, that scary. Is, that's a little scary to me that the restaurant being that big, I'm like, woo. uh, but you know, they didn't <laughs> ask me, they didn't uh, ask me because I would have told them, hey, do the patio, the that that's really big like are y'all what else are y'all going to do are y'all going to have a bar program there like that just seems really big for a chicken place well then they are going to have a really good deal
0: they are going to have a bar program they're going to have they're going to have draft cocktails to go along with craft beer so okay. so that is certainly true they will have that and i assume they'll do a whole bunch of to go just because it's 2021 and any kind of fast casual restaurant has got to have that be part of their model, you know, not having had Hattie B's, I, you know, I've been, I've been sort of struggling with the hot chicken thing. I like Miko's. you know, I went to Dave's, which is new from LA they've got a location on Westheimer a location in Midtown. I, I was kind of underwhelmed. I've been to cook shack a couple of times. I like cook shack. Okay. I've been to, I haven't been to tumble 22 cause it's all the way out in vintage park. That's, that's too far for me, for hot chicken.
1: Yeah, so, I haven't tried that. I have to go there and try that to see. Before they get here, I have to try that.
0: I went to Howdy. I, I thought it was fine. Like, not not good. Like, not, not good enough to go back. But, you know, not not bad. Just like, eh, you know, yeah. I've tasted this. I've tasted this. I'm going to stick to Miko's and Cook Shack, which are my sort of current favorites. So I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying I'm open to Hattie B's being really great and kind of resetting my expectations for what hot chicken can be. So, you know, f- that's fine. But I, I am, I'm sort of curious about. about you know
1: what's so funny celebrity. about it here, though? here's what's so funny. I wonder like literally when I've gone, you know, the place is, is not fancy. You know what I'm saying? It's not fancy. It's like the chicken, there's some bread. Yeah. It's just so simple, simple and plain. I mean, for, for the most part, it's not like, I mean, it's a restaurant, but not a restaurant, right? Like you're saying, like, I go get my chicken, I eat it. It's just the simplicity of it. Um, you know, when they hit the Houston scale, now it's like, this restaurant and it's a thing. And I get it. They're probably wanting it to be a thing. And maybe some of their newer restaurants that they've opened in different places. I'm assuming um, that they may look like this. So I hope that they stick to the chicken and stick to what they do well and not try to play to this Houston crowd. If that makes sense.
0: No, no, I I get the sense (laughs) it's going to be the Hattie B's menu that, you know, from Nashville and all their other locations with the same Southern sides and the, banana pudding and that's it. You know, I don't, I don't think they're fancying it up for us. I don't think they're trying to change it. I don't think you're going to see them do like a hot chicken banh mi or whatever that would try to, you know, hot chicken tacos to try to, to try yeah, to get I'll our bet. attention. Correct. I think they're just going to stick to what they do. I um, And of course we have a long time. I mean, this isn't going to open until sometime in 2023 because it's ground right. up construction. You know if you drive past the address right now it's a parking lot so they've got a lot of work to do but this is this is one of those restaurants it's kind of on that list of well if I could have anything from out of town open here what would it be right number one of course for me is din tai Fung, the, the dim sub restaurant but somewhere on that somewhere in that top 10 or 15 Hattie B's would be on that list. So it's coming it's just going to be a minute.
1: Yeah, I'm, again, I'm, I'm interested. They're definitely, that size just concerns me. That's it. Like, you know, it's just really, really big. And maybe they got a really good price. You know, we have like, hey, we have this spot. It's a great location. We'll give it to you for this amount of money. On normal days, it will be this amount. And, but I'm saying that if, if that's the case, that's fine. But Houstonians, like sometimes certain places, we don't want it to be too big. Because now when I go in there, what happens is, you know, you have a normal day, a normal crowd, and it appears empty, right? So I'm like, oh God, it must not be that good. That, that <laughs> there's no one in here. When in fact, you know, they probably may be decent crowds. The restaurant's just big. So, I mean, bigger's not always better.
0: Right. I mean that Gus's footprint, like on Washington, where it's really small and intimate and they're always on the line. You know, that that makes a certain amount of sense for a fried chicken restaurant to me. But you know, we're we're right. gonna move on. We're gonna move on, but I will and obviously we'll see, because I suspect they'll come into town, do some pop-ups, introduce themselves, and then when you see the turnout for that, you'll get a sense of what they're really capable of.
1: Yep. Okay.
0: All right. Topic number three. Ah, yes. Houston Restaurant Weeks revealed a donation of about $933,000 in 2021, which is a lot of money that will help the food bank feed about 2.7 million people, which is great. But it's also the lowest donation amount in about 10 years. And, and I should say there's there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it took place in August. You know, that was the height of the Delta variant. A lot of people made the choice to kind of lay low, stay home, not go to dine-in at restaurants. And then the other thing is Houston Restaurant Weeks, in recognition of the fact that restaurants have been struggling, let them keep more of the money from each meal sold instead of giving it to the food bank. So there's a $49 menu. Most years, that would be a $7 donation. This year, it was a $5 donation. There's a $35 Mm -hmm. menu. That's usually a $5 donation. This year, it was a $3 donation. So you take all of that into account, and you get, instead of a donation total around $2 million, you get a donation of less than $1 million. And so, Felice, I say that to say to you, do you think that this indicates diminished interest from diners in Houston restaurant weeks?
1: Um, Yes, I do. Um, I think with all the things said, yes, I'm saying yes to all that, all that played a factor. And if you throw the money back, like take, put the money back in, give them the same amount of money that we've always done. I think the numbers would have still been low, right? Um, the Delta variant maybe played a bigger part, but I think it's time to, um, reinvent that, whatever. And again, I'm not here to say how you reinvented, what it looks like. I'd have to think about it. But what I will say is if I talk to 20 people during the time of HRW, probably 80% of them were like, oh, it is HRW. Like in years past, everyone knows about HRW. They're anticipating it. Um, at least going to one or two restaurants. A lot of people didn't even remember. And I think maybe is it because we've been, you know, um, cooped up in the house because of COVID? I don't know. But even with those things being said, I think that um, it's time to, and when I say reinvent it, I don't mean like just blow it up and throw it out, just freshen it up, freshen it up.
0: Well, so they're, they're going to try that. You know, Cleverly Stone passed away in 2020. Right. Her daughter, Katie Stone Cappuccio, has taken it over. They started the Cleverly Stone Foundation to continue HRW. And so they're trying something new in February that they're calling Eat Drink HDX, which is a more mm-hmm. casual, like pitch to more casual restaurants. So instead of 35 and 49, the top. I think the dinner price is 25 bucks, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's designed to get a a slightly different mix of restaurants involved. And it's going to take place for two weeks, February 15th to February 28th. And maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe that's the programming. uh, Innovation that kind of changes people's perceptions of, of HRW. Uh, You know, the one thing that, that, as I was looking over the list and, and I'm, I'm sort of torn between like the, the understanding that we want to raise as much money as possible for the Houston food bank, which is a very, a very worthy cause, but also that you want participating in HRW to feel special. And so when you see every you know, saltgrass steakhouse location in the Houston area on, it, it undermines it a little bit for me. So oh, right. mm-hmm. I think the, the one thing that I would say to Katie is let's be a little choosier about what restaurants get to participate in HRW and let's really hold them to the idea, you know, this was, and this was Cleverly's point for many years and she, she backed off a little bit um, as time went on, but, but it's something that, that always struck with me, which is that Houston Restaurant Weeks first and foremost is a dinner dining event. And so you sometimes you see restaurants they only do lunch, or they want to do brunch. They don't want to do dinner. I, I think you got to hold the line on that. I think you you have to find restaurants that are compelling at that thirty five dollar price point. And you know if you're going to go all the way up to forty nine, that's okay. From forty five, I I understand that, but it's got to be it's got to be really compelling because that that forty nine dollars, right? You add a glass of wine to that or a cocktail or both taxi tip. I mean, you know, that's that 50 bucks becomes 80. And at that point I can go, I can have a nice dinner at almost any restaurant in the city Correct. For, for 75, Correct. $80 a person.
1: Yeah. You know, and I you spent just hit it. You hit it. You hit it. Yeah. That's it.
0: Right. I had a, I had a really good dinner um, at Nancy's hustle last week, you know, that was $160 with, you know around uh, a round of cocktails at the start around a round of cocktails for dessert, uh, you know three courses, the whole shebang, like a really good meal at one of the best restaurants in the city. So if you're gonna do that, if that's if that's where HRW is going, I, I so be it but the, the participants have to be really compelling. I have to feel like I still want to feel like I'm getting a deal because in the yeah, old days it really insane. felt like,
1: you were, feel, you know. that's what I was gonna say. That yeah. was the next thing I was gonna say is that once I look down the list, um, and I use them like oldies but goodies, you know, like when we do the thing, oldies but goodies, and um, what's the best deals? Because there's usually so many where you're like, you got to go here. What's the new ones that you want to look out for? I was hard pressed to find um things that really impressed me um on there. Like you said, there was. Uh, and not, I won't not to dog anybody, but there was places on there and I'm like going, why would I go there on an HRW? I wouldn't even give them my money on a regular night, you know, based on experience or whatever. Um, so the thing with HRW, it needs to be, I, I want it to be special. I want it to be, if I go to an oldie but goodie, something like that, something new and exciting or something that I know is a classic that I'm getting a great deal, right? And then I'm giving to charity as well, um, you know? like, so that I'm with you. So I I hope that Katie's hearing this part of it. And maybe a lot of people have told her this in her ear, but um, just kind of if more, again, and more is not better. If you have, I'll, I'll use a hundred just as number, you have a hundred restaurants, and only a 75 agree to what, what you want. Just go with 75. You know, don't go that 75 that um, are solid, that you still will possibly get more people than you would have with the hundred and the other 25 are kind of doing their thing.
0: Right. I mean, if you look at the top two donators from 2021, it's BNB Butchers and Brennan's of Houston. And you talk mm-hmm. about that—that that oldie but goodie—and the two, the the thing that unites both of those restaurants is their menus are great. You get yep. you get a lot of their best dishes are available, and yeah, it's that forty nine dollars price point, but mm-hmm. it still feels like a bit of a deal because the quality is there, the experience is there. You, you have a lot of choices. You're not stuck with like some, you know, six ounce fillet or you know piece of salmon. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's the stuff you you would get anyway and so right really kind of rethinking which restaurants participate you know what they offer i think i think that's kind of the first step and then and then maybe maybe it does mean in a lower donation total maybe maybe there's only 150 restaurants that participate instead of yeah. 250 or 300 but but make them all great mm-hmm. and, and and get rid of the soft grass you know i I mean Soccer, I went to soccer Steakhouse dozens of times over the years with my father. It was a family favorite, but like it 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 does belong in HRW. Right. All right. Felice, I'm gonna say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. Today's show is sponsored by Balcones Distilling. Balcones makes grain-to-glass whiskeys at their distillery in Waco. I could talk about all the awards they've won, or that they're one of the pioneers of the growing American single malt movement. Instead, I want to talk about flavor, specifically of their flagship Texas One single malt. Pour a dram, and you'll get aromas of toffee and overripe fruit. Take a sip and savor the silky texture and flavors like lightly toasted bread with butter and marmalade. The finish offers more of those coffee toffee notes with wood flavors that round it all out. Personally, I drink my whiskey neat. but You're welcome to try it with a little water or even in any classic whiskey cocktail. Look for Balcones in stores, bars, and restaurants across Texas. Try it. I think you'll like it. Felice, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk to you about Maze. This is the new restaurant in the old Carmelo's space on Memorial Drive kind of on the, the border of the energy corridor. Um, you know, we had, we had things we liked, we had things we didn't. Um, but let me just, let me just throw it to you kind of first impressions you walk into the space. What did you think of Maze? maze?
1: It's so beautiful. When I walked in, I was like, job well done. Um, you know, I didn't think of the two previous restaurants that had been there. Um, I did after I was like, oh, I love the job done with the space, right? Then I start envisioning um, envisioning everything else that was there before. I love the color, I love how bright it is, a good use of space. Um, yeah, so that that was my first impression of like, oh, they did a really good job. It's I, This is a place I'd wanna be in, you know? Like I'd wanna dine. Even the patio, they create, continue. Well, you start at the patio. I didn't see the patio at first. I was like, did I give enough of time with that patio? I was, went in, and then went back outside to make sure, you know, it flowed well. I'm like, oh, okay. Job well done. Yeah,
0: no, the, patio. Patio, the patio is nice. It's, got, it's a good size. It's got the lights. Yeah. It's got heaters. It's, yeah. it, it looks very comfortable. We, of course, were in the dining room. I agree with you. I think it's very It's very pretty. It's very comfortable. Uh, you know, we were there for uh, the better part of two and a half, maybe three hours. Mm-hmm. And and it was fine. You know, it yeah. felt good. It felt good. It, it, we didn't want to leave.
1: Yeah. And, correct.
0: And, you know, and I think that extends to the, you know, the cocktail menu. It's like a lot of choices, uh, you know, different margaritas, different Palomas, different, you know, old fashioned variations, you know, one with tequila, one with Mezcal, you know, obviously one with bourbon, but but, you know, lots of compelling choices in in that department and then kind of looking over the spirits list and, and it's very well priced. So if you want a pour of, you know, a special tequila or a whiskey or whatever, that that's that's all available. And it's not it's it's not break the bank, you know, in the same way that it would be inside the loop.
1: No, I agree. They did a wonderful job with the. Um the spirits, um, and the wines and everything. I just thought it was, I was like, oh, wow. In my mind, I was thinking, and I always, especially if it's somewhere near where I live, which it is, I'm like, is this a place that I would stop and sit traffic out? Cause you know, that's a running joke. Like sometimes I'll make it so far and I'm like, I can't take it anymore. Where am I going to stop and sit traffic out, have a drink and a nap. And that was definitely a place that I would, you know, really be looking forward to doing that because um, the cocktails were nice and um, they, they were tasty. Everyone seemed to enjoy their cocktails. Um, they were pretty. And um, yeah, so I agree with you.
0: Right. So, all right. So let's talk about the food. What, you know, we had, we had like several rounds of, you know, we had, we had oysters raw and roasted. We had, uh, we had shrimp empanadas. We had duck enchiladas, we had barbacoa, we had a, a fish special, or the, the fish of the day, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: maybe what what stood out to you?
1: Um, <laughs> the shrimp empanadas, which I was like, I knew that they would be tasty, but I didn't expect them to be such a star. I don't know why I didn't. I guess because it was an appetizer, that's why I didn't expect it to be just such a breakout star. But um, yeah, so the empanadas were a star and the fish, the fish of the day, um rocked rocked our world. And I'm laughing because I expected it to be everything else, right? I expected the the um duck into la- everything that I thought was gonna be my favorites were not my favorites. It was the opposite. What about you?
0: Well no, I agree with you. I mean, I thought the shrimp empanadas were fantastic, and I thought that fish of the day, which has this kind of, it's not a mole exactly, but it's like a corn based sauce. I thought that was really flavorful. The fish was cooked really nicely. It was juicy, uh, you know, the, the dishes, you know, and it's a new restaurant. It's still kind of getting its mm-hmm. sea legs. So, uh, but still, I mean, the octopus was undercooked. It was chewy, you know, the, the, the barbacoa, you know, I, as, as I sort of told them when they, they asked us what we thought of it, it's like, you know, I, I, Fairly or unfairly, I sort of compare every barbacoa to Gerardo's
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and, and, you know, which is, which is very casual, you know, basically a convenience store, but they make really great barbacoa and it has that, that rich, melty, fatty quality to it. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't taste that in your barbacoa, then it's not as good in my opinion. And and so that was kind of the experience at May's was that it, it just didn't. It didn't have that richness. I thought it was a little bit dry, even though it was cooked in the banana leaf. I thought the portion right. was it, kind of on the small side, and it, and it's not served with anything other than. I mean, it's served with tortillas and, and pickled onions, and salsa, but it's hard to make a meal out of it because you know it doesn't come with and and you know again this is kind of a Tex Mex expectation, but it doesn't come with rice and beans, right? So it, it you know you got to go into the menu and find a vegetable dish or something to sort of pair it with. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that kind of gets to my my only concern is that it's, you know, we, we love interior Mexican food in this town. And, and obviously it's made, it's done very well for Hugo Ortega. It's, it's a big part of what's been good for places like Pico's and Cuchara. Um, but I do think as a, as a new restaurant in a neighborhood that's, that's very used to Tex-Mex, it, it might help to give people an off-ramp or two, you know, you don't have to have fried shrimp tacos or beef fajita tacos, but, but maybe you should have like a pork pastor or a carnitas or something that would be a little less expensive and a little more approachable, but still consistent with, you know, a, a traditional Mexican approach to cooking and, and and at the same time, it's like, give us the, you know, give us the side, give us, give us just a little bit more. And so, I, I mean, I think they're onto something. And, and I think, you know, Chef Fabian Saldana, who worked at Mark's and was the executive chef at Sochi, is obviously very talented and very experienced. And he's working with Mark Cox, who is, you know, one of the legends of fine dining in Houston. And so, I you know, I'm not concerned about the flubs in the cooking because I think they'll figure it out. But I am a little bit concerned that that there's like a philosophical perspective, like when you have four dishes with insects and nothing with mole, that you're not really reading the neighborhood very well.
1: Right, right. And I think to your point, um, yeah, they're going to probably have to make some tweaks with that um, because when you talk about like the barbacoa, right, like that was it. Yeah. And you didn't just think it was dry, like everyone without everyone saying it at the same time where you're like, yeah, it's kind of dry. So and it's new. I asked someone that went on Saturday, they got the barbacoa and said it was amazing. It wasn't dry. It was like the best barbacoa they ever had. Right. And they so, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's great to hear because, you know, they are kind of working through the things. They are still in grand opening. Right. Pre grand opening. Um, I think that they would have to, I was wondering where they would add those tacos because like you're saying, like they have a entire section for insects, you know, like um for tacos and it'll be interesting, um, how well that goes over, but you know, you have West chase and people coming from all over that'll try that out, but far as, um, and enjoy it, but In the neighborhood, I think that they're going to need to have a little bit more of like whatever they would consider a regular type taco, right? Like maybe add that to the appetizer portion of it um, and a couple more sides. Um, Where they shine that I wouldn't, that I didn't feel like anything needed to be changed um, was the dessert menu. Every single one of those desserts um, were spot on. And, you know, I'm not a chocolate girl. I can take a bite and be good. And that's what I did. But I didn't taste from the churros to the tres leches. I did not find anything I didn't like. I wanted it all. And I wanted to keep eating each one of them equally. (laughs)
0: No, I I completely agree with you. Desserts were definitely a standout. (laughs) Uh, I, I am a chocolate person. I want all of the chocolate. The chocolate was great. It came <laughs> with this, this like sauce that had a little bit of uh, orange in it that kind of brightened it up, lifted it a little bit. The churros were, were super crispy, very well fried, and that corn truss leches is a winner. I mean, you know, not that, um, you know, I'm always happy to see truss leches on a menu and, and I thought this was a very good version. So yes, the night ended well. Uh, I thought the appetizers were pretty good overall. It was the entrees that were a little bit of a letdown except for that fish dish. But, but yes, it's a new restaurant. I I do think they will get that stuff straightened out and there are opportunities for tacos because they're going to do a lunch menu and they're going to do a happy hour menu. And, And so there are things that they could do that will make it a little bit more approachable for people who, you know, want they, you know, they, they, they know that it's not Tex-Mex, right. If they want Tex-Mex, they've got right. places they can go for that. But maybe they don't want to spend, you know, $30 on, on the barbacoa or whatever it is. So uh, right. yeah, some, some rethinking to do some tweaks to make, but uh, I, I think I would happily go back to maze. I, you know, I'll give them a, a month or two to get their sea legs and then I'd be happy to go back. What do you think?
1: Oh, I'm ready to go back because I wanted to try those cheeks. The braised cheeks. Yeah, the pork cheeks. Um, yeah. And I saw one of um my friends went that had the barbacoa and couldn't stop raving about them. So that is the next thing for me to knock down on that menu. Those those pork cheeks. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. Police <laughs> well, that does it for our restaurant of the week. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Eric. I'll talk to you next time.
0: All right. And I will be right back with Aaron Inkrot and Brock Wagner. I am joined this week by the founder of St. Arnold Brewing Company and its new brewmaster. We start with founder, Brock Wagner. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Eric? Thanks for having us back. Thanks for being here. Aaron Blue brewmaster. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Aaron, let me... Well, Brock, actually, let me start with you. I, I mean, you... You are the founder of St. Arnold, and you have been its only brewmaster until recently, when you uh, promoted Aaron to that title. Why? Why was now the time for you to give up that to give up that role? Well, uh, I have a twofold answer
2: to that. One is that at so I actually never used that title. I've always been founder slash brewer. So, founder slash brewer is what we use in any outward looking PR stuff. If I'm signing a document, I sign it as president. Um, but the company has evolved, and you know it's been it's been many years since I've turned a valve. But a brewmaster has sort of a higher responsibility of production and the overall quality and, and managing and scheduling and raw materials. And and there's a lot of different aspects to it. And so I would say that really this is much more about the elevation of Aaron than me passing on the title. It's Aaron Having been with us for ten years, having held many different roles on the brewing team, having been you know a high contributor, developing recipes, leading R and D, doing scheduling—I mean, he has seen it all, done it all. Continues to be a uh, a person in the in the community talking about beer. He he loves beer, lives beer, drinks beer, brews beer. Um, So it's all those things kind of coming together and it made sense organizationally uh, for him to have that title because it's really a reflection of what he's doing.
0: Yeah, Aaron, let me me bring you in on this. I mean, maybe kind of start about, maybe start with kind of your path into craft beer. Like when did you first develop an interest in in brewing and, and how, how did you make your way to St.
3: Arnold 10 years ago? I worked at an Irish pub in college that had a small brewery attached to it. And while I was a bartender there, I hung out with the, the brewers there and just kind of got an idea of what it was like. And there was, since we made a variety of different beers, I kind of got introduced pretty quickly that there's more than just one style. Um, I moved to Houston about, about 15 years ago and I was working in uh, the recording industry at the time, but, um, I also liked to go to the flying saucer quite a bit, uh, if I wasn't working. So, um, that was a even a bigger education in what, you know, what styles could be. And, uh, right at the time when I did move here, my father and I started to get into home brewing, and So that was a hobby that quickly became an addiction, and ended up brewing probably uh, every two weeks, and we did that for about five years, and we just kind of became really obsessed with it, and really enjoyed the connection of being a creative outlet, outlet, but while also being very scientifically minded, which was you know it was very fulfilling. Um, There was. Uh, St. Arnold was looking for a tour guide uh, at one point, and I saw that as one avenue of trying to get a foot in the door, and I did that for about a year, year and a half, and then a position opened up to be a brewer. I applied, and uh, 10 years later, there it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Brock, do you, re- do you remember that, when the, the tour guide thought he wanted to be a brewer? Do you, do you recall kind of your reaction to that? Um, yeah.
2: I mean, one of the things that we look at is, you know, when we hire people, it's that passion for beer and not just a passion for beer, but really a passion to be at St. Arnold's also. Um, Yeah. I think that we have such community around our brewery. Yeah, we're, we love building community in the community, but it really starts at home. And I think, for our culture, the best way to find people who really want to be a part of St. Arnold are the people who are already a part of St. Arnold and the people who are willing to come in. And, you know, we have lots of examples of people who've come in and poured beer, been a tour guide. And then when we're interviewing for, say, a brewer position, that is something that I always look upon really positively. So, yeah, I do remember, when he wanted to join as a brewer and frankly that gave him a big leg up you know proved his interest and and the other nice thing about that is you you already know the person you've met with them you've talked to them you know know their personality you know how they're going to fit in and you know aaron aaron is a, a person that you will enjoy having a beer with everybody enjoys having a beer with aaron so that that's a critical test at, uh,
0: for coming to work at St. Arnold's
3: That's do a real, do we, that's a real test, Eric. <laughs>
0: well, I, I, I was just thinking, you know, I've, I've talked to Brock before. And, and one of the things he said once was that one of the kind of criteria for a St. Arnold beer is that you drink one and you want to have another one. And so it makes complete sense to me that one of the criteria for being a St. Arnold employee is that you would want to have a beer with them because it, it just speaks to a certain like affability you know, uh, pleasantness that, I mean, if you don't want to have a beer with that person, then you, you don't want to make beer with that person. That makes sense to me. Yeah, <laughs>
2: no, that that's very true. And also we have beers together. That's part of what we do is after work, people have shift beers, you know, people from different parts of the brewery, You know, you know the packaging, brewing, beer garden, you know, office, we'll all hang out and have beers together. And, um, yeah, as you know, you want to have beers with people that you want to have beers with. And if there's one person in the group, that's kind of, you know, the negative person or whatever, everybody else goes home. I mean, it it completely destroys the whole camaraderie that exists. So it, it actually is an important test. It's somebody that you want to have a beer with,
0: All right, Aaron? Let me let me talk just a little bit more about your career. I mean, how did you kind of work your way up through the ranks? You know, what were maybe some of the the beers that people would know that you kind of led development of?
3: Um, first recipe I had approved was in our Icon series. Um, at the time. I was pretty obsessed with Belgian beers and um, wanting to kind of try to blur styles, I guess, in some way. And there was the style that was, um, it was kind of a a beer to guard, but more of a beer to Mars. Basically, basically it's a French French beer that pretty high in alcohol, but I really loved Cezanne Belgian yeast strains, which is they're right on the same border of each other. So that was um, the first beer I got approved. It was called a, um, beer to guard or oh, no it was a uh, beer to saison excuse me beer to guard was what it was based on beer to saison and it was a pretty <laughs> pretty large beer um ended up being around eight and a half or nine percent alcohol i remember and uh we've ate we aged a few times in barrels and it was really fun beer but that was the that was the first one i got that got approved i remember drinking it with brock at the bottom of the stairs in the cellar when he tried it and he was like let's do it and i asked and I said I was like can I, can i can i get a hug and uh <laughs> i got <laughs> i got pretty excited by that so it was it was i mean it's it's always a dream for any any production brewer any brewer in general to you know have go through quite a bit of r and d and finally get it something approved and then watch it go through uh you know the milling it brewing it watching it for watching fermentation and finally seeing it packaged. Um, and it's thankfully something that doesn't get old. So it's, and then you get to go out in public and see people drink it and they smile and they look at it. And it's, it's always, it's, it's it's always fun. It's, it's great. Um, The one after that, uh, there were, there were a couple more icon recipes that were after that. And then, um, eventually came to manage the, uh, the Bishop barrel program and, there's a slew of beers that a lot of people were involved in that I got to participate and help kind of bring along. Um, And yeah, it's fun to see people have a smile after they take a sip of something. So it's uh, pretty rewarding, I'd say.
0: Well, and and, you know, you're now you're in the position of being the, you know, the person giving the hugs, right. You're not receiving the (laughs) hugs. You're, You're the one who says (laughs) we're, we're making this.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I, I'll definitely, like we're going through right now, doing some R and D on, you know, like a, uh, a dark, strong beer. And then, you know, always working on IPAs and a few other things. And when you're trying something that one of your brewers has, and you, you know, it's really good. You slap them on the back and say, Hey, that was a, that was a really good beer. And you kind of see the, you see the joy in their face too. So yeah, it's, it, it's fun to tell someone that they're doing a good job. That's a really easy thing for me to do.
0: <laughs> well, and, and maybe just elaborate a little bit on the, the development process. You know, there are, there's so many IPAs there are so many different styles of beer. I mean, what, what are you looking for when you're developing a recipe? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you balance that you know, we want to innovate. We want to do something new. We want to give something to people that that's different, but but also still recognizably a Saint Arnold beer.
3: There's a few things that go into it. Um One really good prime example of just you know going off of being creative and not really just going with your gut. So French Press was just released um, uh, when that beer was in development at the time. Eddie Eddie Gutierrez uh, he brought a random beer to R and D and said, I really wanted to make an Imperial coffee Porter. And as soon as we tried it, everybody said done, we're ready to let's, let's make it, let's do a whole brand behind it. Let's find out the time of year to to release it. And then there's other ones that require a little bit more strategic planning. Um, you know, trying to fit what kind of seasonal we want to make, we want to put into it. Um, also the cost of ingredients is really critical. Um, for example, one of my favorite base malts is very expensive. So <laughs> you can't really put put a whole effort around a brand if it's not going to be a profitable beer. Um, so I think there's there's a variety of things that have to go into play there. It's what are your consumers looking for? What's exciting? And then also, I got in this business to be a creative brewer, and that's what I still want to do. Um, and so you have to follow your inspiration just as just as much, I think.
0: Well, so so let me ask you specifically. I mean, you know, you guys have done more of some of these trends recently. I mean, you're you're making a hazy IPA, you're making a seltzer. You know, when you when you come into a, a, a style that may be new to St. Arnold, like what do you how do you how do you develop that recipe in a way that lets it stand out?
3: Well, I I'd say quality is the is the foremost thing when it comes to St. Arnold. It that's what that's what I've always identified it when I when I when I started working here and it's still what I identify as as of now. And that's what people expect more than anything. So how can we make a unique product that's unique to St. Arnold? What what is what is the what is that unique character? And then also how do we make it high quality and consistently? So for example with the seltzers it we we felt uh, we felt that we could create a unique spin on seltzers by using real fruit because um, pretty much all the seltzers that you see on a shelf are some type of natural or chemical extract for flavoring purposes. And as a brewer, I like to use real ingredients. So we kind of took that approach and that's the approach that we went with Superfine. Um, for hazy IPAs, it's I think it, it there's such a big force in the industry right now that I think, ignoring it would would be a detriment more than anything else. So how can you make it unique? How could we make it unique to St. Arnold? Um so we we have we play around with a variety of different hops that we may have more access to than other breweries just because of the partners that we work with. And we ended up making several hazy IPAs using Holotar Hurstbrucker hops. And when we told the hop growers that we were using it, they looked at us and like why would you use that? I was like why not? it made a really good beer and it was mostly because they wouldn't even think to make a hazy beer with noble hops. So it's, you just got to try it at least once and then it turned out pretty good. So we just kept on doing it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Brock, would you say that's one of the bigger differences from, from sort of when you started St. Arnold and now is that the, the variety of styles is broader? Uh, there are so many
2: differences between when we started and now. I mean, when we started, there was no market for craft beer in in Houston. Um, so that was sort of the first thing, was just trying to tell people what we were doing and why Amber Ale was different and and the flavors that they were experiencing because they were not used to having flavor in their beer. And, um, you know, that's why... there there was very little innovation in the early years. I mean, between, uh, for year round beers, we started with Amber uh, in 1994, June of 94, about a month or two months later, we introduced Crystal Bites. And a year later we introduced Brown Ale. um, And it was, six years later that we introduced our next year-round beer, which was Fancy Lawnmower Beer. So in our first, from 1994 to 2001, uh, we introduced a total of four year-round beers. We have had years when we have introduced four year-round beers now. So I think today... There's kind of a constant need for innovation, new brands. Um, the uh, you know we are constantly you know, we meet every single Thursday morning for R and D to go over to taste beers that are new beers that we're developing, taste other beers in the market, discuss strategy. Kind of all these things kind of come together. Uh, I should put the the caveat in those first. Uh, seven years or so, we also developed our entire year uh, seasonal program. So Christmas Ale, Oktoberfest, Summer Pills, um, Winter Stout all came out during that period also. So we did we did have more than just those four beers, but it still wasn't you didn't see anything like what you see today.
0: Well, and and what do you make of this seltzer trend? Because it, it seems like it sort of came out of nowhere, and now, you know, every brewery, big and small, has to has to have some version, has to have some take on this trend.
2: So, seltzer is something that, to me, you know, is it is ha- has a little bit of a fad to it. I don't think it's going away. It's not a fad like uh, the alcoholic root beer that of whenever that was like eight years ago that that which was god awful um but it definitely came on strong everybody hopped on the bandwagon and now we're seeing the market actually decline in size um you know it something else that's come out of it is it seltzer drinkers do not care who makes their seltzer so We put a lot of care into our seltzer. It came out in a year when we didn't have a real means to go out and sample it like we typically would. Um, During COVID, it was sort of frowned upon to be standing there handing out samples to people in the grocery store. And that's a really big way that we introduce a product. Um, So uh, our super fine is, is unfortunately going the way of the dodo. And I think you're going to find that most craft brands are doing the same thing because there's just not proving to be a market. So I think it's still going to be around. You're still going to see White Claw and truly five years from now. Uh, I don't, you know, and there'll be a handful of other seltzers. But by then there's going to be some other, you know, new cool kid on the block drink that's going to be sweeping the nation for two or three years. Mm
0: -hmm. Is that, is that breaking news that you're, you're getting out of the seltzer business?
2: Uh, I mean, it's, it's, we haven't been exactly been publicizing it, but it's pretty uh, self-evident to anybody who's looking out there.
0: Well, so Aaron, let me, let me switch back to you then. What, what are some of the things you, you are working on? What are you excited about? You know, what, what were you tasting in your most recent R and D meeting that, that people can maybe look forward to in the, the weeks and months to come?
3: Something that will, will li- outlive seltzers or IPAs. So IPAs, 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 um, West coast or hazy, or, you know, I, I always look at art cars kind of being this hybrid of East meets West. Um, um, so we, we, we enjoy making a variety of different IPAs, um, cause there's always uh, new unique hops being, uh, being produced up from the Pacific Northwest. Um, but, uh, we try, we were trying what well, we were, you know, trying some strong ales that are kind of inspired by barley wines and things like that. Um, yeah, that's kind of what we've been messing around with.
0: What What is it about IPAs do you think that's made it such a staple for, for craft beer drinkers? That is kind of, I mean, maybe it's, it's not exactly how all breweries are judged, but, but, you certainly have to be, it's a style that you have to not just not just have one or two, but you have to be really invested in, it seems like.
3: Uh, I think for me, it was, well, 1980, the pale ale was introduced um, and it had you know bitterness and flavor that consumers weren't familiar with. And then, what would you say, 10, 15 years later, the... American IPA was getting very popular and it was just hops are just a big flavor driver. And I think the issue of just making very, you know, malt driven beers, which were, you know, kind of the focus while back was that malt can tend to be cloying. And I think hops can just, can just provide a little bit more depth uh, to a beer in itself. And uh, so and hop, again, hop growers keep making unique hops that just, you know, not just pine or, or citrus, fu- citrus fruits, but also, you know, tropical fruits and, um, of, and just a variety of different flavors that you would just be surprised that would come out in a beer typically. So floral, spicy, I mean, it, and it pairs really well with food. IPAs go very well with food. And I think that uh, helps as well. <laughs>
2: You know, yeah, I th- yeah, I was going to say that I think that brewers have gotten creative and better about how they use hops, discovered how to really bring focus on the oils and the, the flavors that are in the hops, not just the bitterness. And then as brewers were doing that and some of those beers were becoming popular, hop growers were further incentivized to develop hops that had new and interesting flavors and more intense oils in them. And I think all of that has led to kind of just a whole discovery from the brewers and then the drinkers have all benefited and the feedback has been, hey,
0: we like these. These are good. Um, yeah, I mean, let me, let me shift gears just a little bit to to another trend that seems to be popping up with some craft breweries, which is opening a companion distillery. Is that, is that something that interests you at all? Do you, do you see alcohol as being part of your offering to the future?
2: Absolutely. In fact, we're already working on that. Uh, In fact, Aaron led all the brewers on a little field trip on Friday to go sample Some of our oldest whiskeys, whiskey has been in the barrel now for just over a year. So we started, uh, gosh, close to two years ago playing around with um, on a very small still that we had purchased but had never set up or licensed. We sold it for a dollar to. Gulf Coast Distilling to have let them set it up and license it, and then we could go over and, and play on it. So we've been playing on that, working with different washes that we would make at the brewery and take over there. Um, so our, we've been very focused on on uh, fermentation and what what were our the basic wash recipe. Plus, playing with different barrels and chars and toasts, and um, we we seem to be zeroing in on on what we really like, and and are starting to do a little bit of scaling on that.
0: Well, Aaron, I mean, talk to me a little bit about making whiskey. I mean, what's that been like for you, and and what are you learning? I mean, how is it? How has it been different than brewing beer?
3: Oh, um, it's exciting. It's it's exciting to be looking into a different venture and uh, as a fan of whiskey to begin with, it's even you know more exciting to be a, a part of, uh, I, having managed the, the barrel program for a while, it, I became accustomed to a variety of different ways to, you know, take care of a wood barrel or the way to treat it before you put spirit into it. Um, so that was, kind of having some idea of what it would be like to have something aging. And then the potential for blending was always exciting. Um, But as far as getting it from wash to uh, fermentation to actually distilling was, that was going to have to be a fair amount of uh, ground to cover. Um, Challenging, but exciting for sure. And so I think when we were doing all those pilot tests, it was trying to find out one, what, what grain bill do we want? So we, the amount of variables that we came up with were, were dozens and just did a very small steps. And, and we get encouraged as we, you know, make a giant step of using determining which yeast strain we want to use. And then, and then finally nailing down, picking around three or four different recipes that had potential on the small scale and scale them up. And then finally taste their, the, the shine that's coming off the still gets it's it's all very exciting and um yeah there's still a lot to learn there's still a lot to do before uh before we're able to release it i mean how long would
0: you would you age something like that typically like three years right it's kind of the
3: i think we're in the two three year range maybe
0: yeah ask us in
2: two three four five years (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah, there's a certain element to it of, uh, like I've always said with beer, it's like, we don't, when you've got a tank of beer fermenting, it's like, we don't tell the beer when it's done, it tells us. And I think it's going to be the same with whiskey. You know, we'll, we have ideas on when it'll be ready and, and some of it's coming along really nicely and is tasting pretty good right now. Um, and, uh, it, but it's not ready yet. But I could easily see it being ready in two years uh, from when it was put in the barrel. But you know, we're not planning on selling it or marketing anything until we're you know really excited about what we
0: have. And then is is whiskey your primary focus, or do you have? You know, so many of these distilleries make vodka, or gin, because it doesn't it doesn't have to be aged or you know we've seen some texas based agave spirits i mean do you is is whiskey the focus or do you have do you have others in mind
2: so i will say that whiskey has the longest lead time of anything um but we have some other things that we want to play with uh that beyond whiskey so we're working on those things but i could tell you but then we'd have to kill you so i, I don't <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. Let's let's not do that. I, you know, I'd <laughs> like to. This is this is uh, you know, I'd like to. This is podcast episode two twenty one. So I'd like to, I'd like to make it to two twenty two if at all possible. Well, that that sounds like a good goal. Uh, <laughs>
2: but yeah, no. I mean, it's a pretty exciting area, and I'll, you know, culturally, we're set up to really develop recipes, and you know, we have so, you know our we hang our hat as. Aaron mentioned earlier on excellence and quality and you know it's fun to take that and apply it to other other things and it's also nice to be doing things where like we can play with a little and if we get something we love we will run with it and if we play with something and you know we're like yeah it's good enough or it's okay we don't have we don't have to you know take anything to market. We we already have a nice little company going, um, so it's not like if you have a bunch of investors and you've just built something and you know you need to have revenues and you got to do something. We're kind of playing with this out of out of our own cash flow and having a lot of fun.
0: It certainly sounds like it. I. How do, how do I get invited to the, the Thursday R&D tasting meeting? That's, <laughs> that's what I want to know. Uh, let me let me ask you about, Aaron, let me ask you about one other thing, which is, you know, you said that one of the ways you kind of got into craft beer was by going to the Flying Saucer and drinking a lot of craft beer. And I kind of look around at the bar scene and and I see that the ginger band closed and, and Hay Merchant is closing at the end of the month. And, and so I, I kind of wonder... If the, the craft beer bar as a concept is maybe waning at the same time that, that it seems like a lot of the conversation about where to drink craft beer, is it breweries like St. Arnold and, and all these little, you know, neighborhood breweries that have popped up in the last five years or so that, that don't really necessarily want to distribute to bars or, or be in stores uh, that, you know, that you have to go. There's something about you kind of have to go to a brewery to experience it. Um, so, so let me just ask you, kind of, what are your thoughts on the current state of the craft beer and bars, and 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 kind of how you think people encounter your products?
3: Oh, I, I think you said it. I mean, trends are going to where a majority of the breweries that are opening nowadays are tiny tap rooms, uh, neighborhood pubs um, for people to, you know, experience their beers directly, and that way they can, you know, take the profits over the table rather than distributing it elsewhere um i think it's in some ways it's i think it's unfortunate because a lot of my favorite experiences of my beer education were going to some of my favorite beer bars across the country like not only the flying saucer but falling rock rust in peace out in denver colorado and um and then the tornado out in san diego and uh san francisco it's like those were you know great gathering places for getting you know 50 60 70 different beers on tap from all over the world so um i think there's the concern there is one marketing way of you know beer is better fresh and better from the source but you know a lot of those large beer bars like you know flying saucer they're the people who manage those places like asa they they ensure that they're getting the highest quality product as best possible for their customer so it's um I think it's unfortunate, um, but it seems that's the way the trend is going.
2: Yeah, it, yeah, I think that it's a reminder that everything changes and to survive, you know, you have to be innovating and evolving. Um, I mean, you certainly see it in restaurants. Uh, I don't think it's any different in craft beer. Um, and everybody kind of wants to things to sort of just stay as they are, but that, that isn't how, how things work and how, uh, you know, you can call it capitalism to blame. Um, everybody's out, you know, people are opening new, new things with new ideas. And it's a, it's a competition of ideas and sometimes new, new ideas come along and yeah, I think the tap room, Really, you, yeah, the fact basically, you are seeing uh, breweries open as essentially just bars. They are craft beer bars, that's the, but they only serve their their own. And you could say it's almost a throwback to probably how you drank beer five hundred years ago. You probably were drinking it from places that made it themselves. There wasn't a lot of beer distribution going on 500 years ago. Um, You know, breweries like us are in pretty good position also because, you know, we distribute so widely, Um, you know, to all the grocery stores, you know, the beer bars, other restaurants. Uh, It's... Right now, I think the people who are seeing a lot of pressure are sort of those breweries that counted on distribution as part of their business model, and they're in the five to 20,000 barrels a year range. They're probably having a really challenging time with the way the market is evolving right now. But my guess is a lot of those breweries are going to survive because they're going to evolve, and the ones that don't will struggle.
0: So so maybe just explain that just a little bit more. Like what what about being that sort of mid-size puts you in a in a squeeze, I guess, because you can't you're you're not you're not getting distributed at as many places or the, the market's too competitive to to stand out.
2: Well, I think one of the things that's putting a big squeeze on breweries that size right now uh, is COVID. Um, some of the, the market dynamics that have occurred. Um, we've seen a big movement back to brands that people are familiar with. Also, you couldn't sample during COVID. It's kind of like what we were talking about before. So breweries that are relying on trying to, um, you know, they're smaller that are still trying to build clientele. It's a lot harder that you can't go to the grocery store and sample beers, um, yeah, you know, the bars were closed down for a while, so that's another place where a lot of sampling occurs. Um, and then on top of that, you've had some weird supply chain issues. Yeah, you know, we just saw one of the main can manufacturers just put a you know, about fifty percent price increase through on their cans. That's five zero percent. Um, and also put seven, put a minimum can order of seven truckloads. And to give you a feeling, we have three brands. So we have about thirteen brands that are out in the stores. We have three brands that are really big enough to justify seven truckloads. Um, so it's a challenge for us, and you know we've got our plans for how we deal with it. But we do 60,000 barrels of beer a year. If you're doing 10,000 barrels, you don't have any brands that meet that kind of a minimum. So suddenly you're faced with having to uh, wrap cans or or, do other things that add even more cost. And the other thing that's happening to the smaller breweries is when something like seltzer comes along, that takes up a bunch of new space in the cold box. And the way the big grocery stores make cuts is they look at what are the slowest selling brands. Well, our slowest selling brands are sell faster than a, most smaller breweries, biggest selling brands. So they end up losing more shelf space at grocery stores than we do. So that's another place that, where you're seeing kind of the smaller breweries really getting squeezed. And that's probably way more into the weeds than you really wanted me to get.
0: No, no, I, I consider this a venue for getting into the weeds sometimes, but, and, and I, I always appreciate your insight because, because I don't think necessarily the people are, are thinking through these issues and, you know, we develop an affinity for certain local breweries and we just sort of feel like they're always going to be around and, and, you know, if anything happened to any of those sort of mid-pack, you know, I'm not going to start rattling off names. I don't want to. I don't want to put that stink on anybody. But you know, if anything happened to any of them, I I would certainly be surprised, just because I I've watched them sort of rise and earn a place in the market, and and I would be, uh, you know, sad if if any of them went away. I you know, I we like having, we would be too. I like having choices. <laughs> yeah,
2: we like um, having a community of breweries.
0: So so let me just so let me just wrap this up on a slightly more positive note. Um, like you said, you're you're constantly tasting new beers. You're you're out in the market. I mean, uh, what are some of the little guys, or or maybe what are one or two beers that you've had recently that have really impressed you? Uh, any, anything that you're like, darn, I wish we'd we'd made that
3: uh, here in Houston or elsewhere? I guess. I yeah, guess- here in
0: Houston, something that, that yeah. people listening to this might might encounter
3: somewhere. Um, every time I have Eureka's mini boss, I always, every time I have it, I think, damn Casey did it again. It's a good beer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I think about that beer a lot. Um, every time I have it and I, it's usually the first beer I get from him. Um, so probably a true anomaly makes some really good stuff. I like their stuff a lot.
0: Yeah. True Anomaly yeah. is the one where when I post it on Instagram, I, I hear from the I get the the DMs from the craft beer guys being like, that's a good brewery. Or uh yeah. or yeah, uh, Astral. Astral, I think, is the other one. It's like if I if I show up at Astral, I'll I'll get like virtual high fives from people. Yeah, I mean it's
2: nice tasting beers also that people are doing different things. Um yeah, you know, I think that's a lot of fun and and I, I think that's part of what makes a really healthy brewing community is the, you know, the diversity of styles and flavors and people involved. Um, so the, the more different takes we have on beer, the, the more vibrant the entire community is going to be, the more people we're going to bring in and the more beer we're all going to sell. And then we, and then we get to keep our jobs, which is always good because we, or, or, otherwise, we'd have to go do real jobs, and that would suck.
0: Yeah, as as someone who doesn't have a real job, I share that sentiment. I, I'm completely unqualified to work in the real world anymore. I, I I can only keep doing this. Well, you seem you've been doing
2: it for a long time and doing it well. So, you're clearly doing it the right way.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. that's very kind of you. I, we say the same thing about Saint Arnold. You've been doing it for. A heck of a long time at this point. You're coming up on 30 years.
2: Yeah. The beard is fully gray now. <laughs> <laughs> and there's
0: less hair. Um, Aaron, do you have any uh, final thoughts before we wrap this up?
3: Uh, I'm just very thankful to be a, you know, still with St. Arnold and looking forward to the future, of course. And I um, appreciate the opportunity to talk about it on your show.
0: Well, well, thanks for coming. Uh, I think I'm going to skip the lightning round. We've run a little bit long. But Aaron, why don't you give us your your Instagram and, and kind of let people know how they can keep up with everything that's going on at St. Arnold.
3: Uh, they can find me, my first and last name, Aaron Inkrott, A-A-R-O-N-I-N-K-R-O-T-T. And uh, yeah, I'd like to post all things beer-related and sometimes my kids. So there it is. <laughs> and baked And baked goods. I make a lot of pies, so.
2: Yeah, you'll see some, some uh, mouth-watering pies show up on his feed.
0: And of course, Arnold.com for all the latest St. Arnold news. And uh, I find subscribing to the newsletters very helpful. I'll put in a plug for the, the St. Arnold Army uh, missives. They're, they're a good way to keep up with everything happening at St. Arnold.
2: Thank you for that. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. All right, thanks, Eric. Look forward to episode 222. <laughs>
0: You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.